From the start, love and poetry have been intimate companions with Islamic mysticism. The love between God and humanity is an essential element of the Sufi tradition, and this relationship with its many permutations is central to Islamic mystical verse. This poetry, like love and mysticism, is more or less oblique, for it shares with them a fundamental problem regarding language. Namely, how does one discuss the larger world of experience with language that has evolved to satisfy everyday needs? Well, with striking images and metaphors, structural and phonemic patterns, and the beat of rhythm and meter, a poet can evoke moods and convey meaning by drawing attention to language via language itself. In this way, a poet urges others to listen more closely and so invest renewed attention into their immediate surroundings, which are psychological and spiritual, as well as physical and temporal. I am he whom I love, and he whom I love is me. We are two spirits dwelling in one body. So when you see me, you see him, and when you see him, you see us. Such verse by Al-Halaj and other Sufis marks a return, a recollection, and a remembrance that are of equal importance to love and mysticism. And it was only natural that Muslim mystics turned to love poetry to voice their feelings and beliefs. Early Sufi love poetry draws many of its themes and images directly from the Arabic Ghazal tradition, whether embodied in the pre-Islamic Nasib, the chaste laments by Jamil and other Odri poets of the 8th century, or in the playful love songs of Omar ibn Abi Rabia. But Islamic mysticism, Sufi poetry, and love have reciprocal relationships, and so by the 10th century, many professional poets found inspiration in Sufism's language of antithesis and paradox, such as that found in a verse, I'll just give you again, a verse by Halaj. Al-ishqu fi azal al-azali min qidman fihi bihi minhu yabdu Fihi, exactly. You can hear just the little cadence of the language. That's why I'm reading a little Arabic. People forget that they didn't speak in English. Eros in the eternity of eternities, from the primordial, in it, by it, from it, appearance appears in it. Eros, before time, is an attribute among the attributes of him whose victims live. His attributes are from him, within him, without time, for the temporal depends on creation. When the beginning appeared, he evoked Eros as an attribute in what came to light, so a gleam glimmered in it. Now, regardless of the exact meaning of this rather abstruse verse, what really caught the attention of poets was this wonderful paradoxical language. And so you find the great Arab court poet of the 10th century, Al-Muttanabi, one of the greatest of all the Arabic poets, he employed this mystical language, not to talk about religious themes, but to amaze and praise his royal patrons. And then we had the great Andalusian poet, Ibn Zaydun, who dies in 1071, who relied upon mystical allusions to intimate the spiritual nature of his abiding love for a lost lover. Inni the karti ki biza ra'il mushtaqa wal ufqur talpur wal al ardi qadraqa Full of passion, I remembered you in Az-Zahra. The horizon was clear, the earth's face shining. The breeze grew faint at dusk, 
It seemed to pity me and lingered full of tenderness. The meadow was smiling, revealing a stream silvery like necklaces unclasped from the breast. We were distracted by a flower catching the eye, dripping with the dew, bending it over, as if its eyes, when they saw my sleeplessness, wept for me with iridescent tears. A rose glowed in its sun-drenched bed, making forming brighter still to the eyes. Beginning to entangle the rose was a white lily, fragrant, drowsy, sleepy-eyed, roused by dawn. Everything stirs up my memory of passion for you, but my chest can't bear it. May God not calm a heart that remembered you but failed to fly on passion's beating wings. Had a passing breeze wished to carry me along, it would have brought you a real man, worn out by his encounter. Or had a day, like our delicious days gone by, as time slept and passed the night's thieves of pleasure, had it fulfilled my desires for union with you, that would have been the day of grace. Oh, my most precious gem, the most sublime, beloved of my soul, as if lovers dealt in jewels. For a time we traded pure love on the track of intimacy where we ran with abandon. How sacred the covenant I kept with you. Though you found comfort with another now, we still remain as lovers. Like the pre-Islamic ode, Ibn Zaydun opens in remembrance of his beloved at her former dwelling place. However, this is not the abandoned campsite in Arabia. It's the verdant Andalusian gardens at the palace of Az-Zahra, where Ibn Zaydun and his lover passed heavenly love nights. Still, in both cases, the beloved is gone. But whereas in the pre-Islamic poet, he flees his memories in the desert encampment, seeking solace in battle, Ibn Zaydun recalls lingering amid the idyllic gardens. There, among the sparkling waters and refulgent flowers, he sees his own emotional turmoil. The tragic humanism of the pre-Islamic ode has been polished to mere sentiments of a refined and rarefied passion. Now, the spiritual nature of the poet's abiding love is alluded to by mystical references contained in several verses. In verse 9, for instance, the poet calls upon God to deny peace to a heart not impassioned by memory of the beloved. May God not calm a heart that remembered you but failed to fly on passion's beating wings. In this context, his use of the word dhikr, memory, remembrance, brings to mind the many Quranic ex exhortations to remember God, as well as the Sufi ritual practice of invoking God's many names. In addition, Ibn Zaydun's word choice for heart, hal, has a mystical connotation, since it is a word often used by Sufis to refer to the site of personal religious enlightenment. Further, he alludes to the near-mystical quality of his love experience with the term jump, union, which in the Sufi lexicon invariably designates mystical union. Or had a day like our delicious days gone by, as time slept we passed the night's deeds of pleasure, had it fulfilled our desire for union with you, that would have been a day of grace. Nevertheless, here, as in the classical ode, fate, the term is dahar, this is time we heard earlier, has conspired to separate the poet from his beloved. While Ibn Zaydun declares his unfailing devotion to her, she has broken the covenant with him. The tension between Ibn Zaydun's spiritual love and his earthly object is pronounced in the final verse. How sacred the covenant we kept with you. Though you found comfort with another now, we still remain as lovers. 
Here we find the common poetic term for a love pact, ahad, which is also the covenant referred to in the last presentation. This is found, again, in pre-Islamic love poetry. This is the bond between lovers. But in the Quran, of course, it's a reference to God's covenant to guide humanity, provided they worship him alone. This provides a clue to the human nature of, uh, the human nature of Ibn Zaydun's beloved. He's not talking about God. For while God adheres steadfast to the divine covenant in the Quran, ungrateful humans break it, just as Ibn Zaydun's fickle lover has severed their pact and found consolation in someone new. Yet despite the, beloved, despite the beloved's infidelity, Ibn Zaydun claims to have remained true to her, and at the end of the poem, we again encounter allusions to the Quran and Sufism. The final passage reads, Baqina ushaqa, we remain or abide as lovers. The Quran states that the transient things of this world will pass away, while God's countenance abides forever. In addition, baqa, as many of you know, or abiding, is a key Sufi technical term, designating the ultimate mystical state in which the seeker passes away from all self-will to abide in God. As for ushak, lovers, this word is related to ishq, eros, as mentioned earlier in verse by Ahalaj. Hence, while eros draws out creation, true lovers are drawn back through pure love to their first source, where Ibn Zaydun claims he stays still. Such unions of love, mysticism, and poetry were encouraged and strengthened by medieval views, medieval views of love, particularly those influenced by Neoplatonism, which saw all forms of love, from the animals on up, including, they would even say, plants and rocks, perhaps, as all emanating from a divine source. Nevertheless, permissible love relationships, as well as their forms of public expression, were, means, were matters of particular concern to religious scholars and literatures alike. The theologian and mystic of the 12th century, Al-Ghazali, warned that public recitation of love poetry might arouse lust and unseemly behavior among the ignorant masses. For as one Sufi said, if the eye can fornicate, the ear can too. <laughs> I kid you not. <laughs> and then we have the 12th century Hanbali scholar Ibn al-Jawzi, mentioned earlier, who was scandalized when amorous verses by the poet Ibn al-Rumi were recited from the pulpit during a Friday sermon in Baghdad. Now that's for your religious men. By contrast, the 11th century literary critic, Atta'alabi, censured al-Muttanabi for using what he called the Sufis' tangled words and abstruse meanings that are found in many Arabic poems, particularly later Arabic mystical poems, including verse by Ibn al-Arabi. You were probably wondering when I was going to get to that. <laughs> well, you've heard these sorts of things already today, such as, he praises me and I praise him. And he worships me when I worship him. In a state I confirm him, while in essence deny him. Then he knows me, while I know him not. While I know him, and so witness him. So where is self-sufficiency? Well, I need an assistant. For this truth he created me, so I know and find him. Thus did the, did the tradition come to us, its meaning realized in me. Now, brevity and paradox lend a creed-like quality to this poem, which appears near the end of Ibn al-Arabi's chapter on Ibrahim in his Fasus of Ekkah, the Bezels of Wisdom. 
The poem highlights the chapter's main subdependence between creator and creation. In a complex rhetorical style reminiscent of earlier verse by Ahalaj, Ibn Arabi repeats verbs with different subjects, at times negating them from tip for antithesis. Further, the pronominal suffix who, found in every verse, becomes a sliding referent with three possible meanings. Him, as a human being, him as a divine being, or it, or I should say, and or it. And all of this grammatically reinforces Ibn Arabi's ideas on interdependence. There's some conscious poetry, some conscious work going on here. Now, according to a tradition popular among the Sufis that we heard about today, God was a hidden treasure who desired to be known, and so initiated creation. Ibn Arabi refers specifically to this tradition in this chapter. God's self-knowledge, therefore, is dependent on his being known in and by creation. Thus, while enlightened believers praise and worship God, it could be said, relatively speaking, that he praises and worships them for helping to manifest him. The realized Gnostic discovers this reality within himself, and so lives not according to his own selfish desires, but according to the divine will, which he finds throughout existence. As God says in a famous tradition on mystical union, referred to in the final verse of the poem and in the body of the chapter, and my, my servant continues to draw near me through willing acts of devotion until I love him. And when I love him, I become his ear with which he hears, the eye with which he sees, and so on. Now, Ibn Arabi composed a great deal of poetry to be found in many of his doctrinal works and in his Diwan, a substantial collection of verse in various forms on a variety of subjects. The poems include several classical odes and elegies, along with numerous shorter poems, which I actually find quite fascinating, on such topics as astral phenomena, dreams, the spiritual significance of the alphabet, the 99 names for God, and the chapters of the Quran. He has 114 small poems, one on each chapter. In addition, a few poems reflect newer poetic forms, such as the five hemistic quintrain, or tachinis, and the Andalusian muwashasha, a kind of strophic folk poetry, which was becoming popular in North Africa, Egypt, and Syria at this time. Ibn Arabi also composed a second collection of verse mentioned earlier entitled The Tarjuman of Turjuman al-Ashwaq, The Interpreter of Desires, consisting of about 60 odes and love poems, some of which have been exquisitely translated recently by Michael Sells. Now, if some criticized al-Muttanabi for imitating Sufi verse, others castigated Sufis for composing love poetry at all. This seems to have been the case with Ibn Arabi's Turjuman. In the original preface to the work, Ibn Arabi noted, as we heard in the last talk, that when he arrived in Mecca in 598-1202, he began to study with an Iranian scholar who had a daughter named Nizam. This woman's physical and spiritual qualities, I underscore both, inspired Ibn Arabi to compose poems using, he said, the Nasib style. That's reference to the pre-Islamic Arabic Nasib and uh, its references to love and expressions from Ghazal poetry, which he, said, which he said fell far short of his true meanings. He says, I have put into verse for her sake some of the long thoughts suggested by those precious moments, 
and I have uttered the sentiments of a yearning soul, and have indicated the sincere attachment which I feel, fixing my mind on the bygone days and those scenes which her society endeared to me. That is, all of this is occurring in memory. Almost all of this poetry is memory. Whenever I mention a name in this book, I always allude to her. And whenever I mourn over an abode, I mean her abode. Again, whatever metaphor she may become, she's not here. All of these places are metaphors for her. In these poems, I always signify divine influences, spiritual revelations, and sublime analogies according to our most exemplary way, Tarifa, for the next world is dearer to us than this one. And due to her understanding what I was alluding to, may God preserve the reader from thinking anything unbecoming to souls that scorn evil and to lofty spirits that are attached to faith. Heaven. Well, despite his disclaimer, I must tell you, a number of these love lyrics have no clear mystical reference. And I mean that. I can find more mysticism in Ibn Zaydun's poem than I can in some of these, leaving them open to more worldly interpretations. And so an overly literal reader apparently objected that Ibn Arabi, a religious scholar, he should have no business composing erotic verse. In response, and he always responds, Ibn Arabi compiled a new edition of his Tarjuman, claiming that his use of, quote, the erotic style and form of expression, the sen al-ghazl wa tashbib, was allegorical in intent. Because people like erotic poetry, he said, it was a useful medium for his mystical message. However, to avoid further misunderstandings, Ibn, Ibn al-Arabi added an extensive commentary on the spiritual and mystical illusions to be found in each poem. And because you have that, then you're going to read a poem that has, within the body of the poem, I can find, I can find, no clear mystical references, but that's not going to stop him. He's going to give you all sorts of commentary. Oh, I mentioned Solomon, that, you know, I, I mentioned Solomon. That refers to the, the, the um, mystical experience in the station of Solomon. He does wonderful um, plays on the on etymologies of Arabic uh, words. Sometimes they're false etymologies; they don't apply. Salma is not Solomon, but hey, it doesn't matter. And so it's a very, it's a very, uh, it's a very creative interpretation. And he says that this interpretation is from the spirit of the moment, the wakt. And remember too, just like John of the Cross, these commentaries come after the poems. We as readers are not required to read them in light of his interpretation. It comes, that is an afterthought. Now, the verse of Ibn al-Arabi's Sufi contemporary, Omar ibn al-Farid, who dies in 1235, has faced similar criticism on occasion. The 15th century critic, Hussein ibn Ahdal, for instance, dismissed Ibn al-Farid's love poems as comparable, he said, to verse by the pre-Islamic Arabs. While a Muslim was permitted to listen to such infidel poetry, it was better left alone. <laughs> ibn al-Ahdal's comparison to Ibn al-Farid's verse to that by pre-Islamic Arabs is particularly apt, in that Ibn al-Farid drew extensively from the pre-Islamic and classical Qasida and Ghazal traditions, both thematically and stylistically. Though Ibn al-Farid composed a number of riddles and quatrains, he does not appear to have experimented with other more popular verse forms or the didactic verse as did Ibn al-Arabi. We do not get verse on astral projections and phenomena and uh, the alphabet. He's a, he's a much more traditional poet. Ibn al-Farid, however, was a recognized master of the poetic style commonly known as Bidiyah, 
or a rhetorical style. Now, by the 13th century, Arabic poetry had entered a period of pronounced mannerism, characterized by an abundant use of rhetorical devices, including antithesis, paronomasia, and double entendre. A primary subject of this verse was the poetic tradition itself, as poets paid homage to past masters while seeking to surpass them by means of rhetorical strategies meant to amaze and delight their audiences. So you must be careful when you read this poetry by Ibn Farah or by Ibn Arabi. Don't think that this is the out, you know, some sort of spontaneous outpouring of an inspired soul like a manic oracle. It is very inspired, but it is also very studied in what it's doing. Now this complex poetic style in the hands of lesser poets and in obsequious praise of minor officials soon threatened to smother poetic creativity with a rhetorical excess of baroque proportions. Yet the Badia style, at its best, challenged familiar modes of perception via metaphorical inversions, antithesis, and wordplay in order to present a world where the seemingly ordinary might suddenly reveal the miraculous. With this in mind, Ibn Farah affected his own particular Badia style to articulate his views of a reality in which all of creation, when seen aright, is bathed in the glow of love's supernal light. Every charming man, every pretty girl, their loveliness is lent to them from her beauty. For her, Kais went mad for Lubna, and just so all the other lovers, like Leila and Majnun, Azen Kufaya, each of them desired the quality that she had lacked in a form of loveliness, shining forth in the loveliness of form. This was so only because she appeared manifest in outward forms, which they supposed were other than her, but she revealed herself within them. She came forth in veils hidden by visible guise, each shown shaded with shapeshift. While some critics found the paradoxical styles of Ibn Farid and Ibn Arabi difficult and abstruse, it was the presumed content of their writings that drew the strongest criticism, as we can see again in Ibn Akbar. He was an outspoken opponent of monistic mystical doctrines, and so he denounced as heretical both Ibn Farid's celebrated poem, Nazma Salut, the poem of the Sufi way, and the writings of Ibn Arabi, right together, lump them together. Ibn Akbar was hardly the first to link the two men in terms of their mystical teachings. Nearly two centuries earlier, Al-Qut ibn Castellani denounced Ibn al-Farid, Ibn al-Arabi, and others for being monists and incarnationists. Perhaps their most outspoken foes, however, were the 14th century humble legal scholar and theologian Ibn Taymiyyah and the 15th century Shafi'i scholar Ibrahim al-Daqabi. Ibn Taymiyyah was an intractable opponent of Ibn al-Arabi and anyone else whom he perceived to be an inherent of the unity of being. At times, Ibn Taymiyyah intentionally and for rhetorical purposes misinterpreted Ibn al-Arabi's abstract and sophisticated doctrines as the grossest pantheism. And on these grounds, he took exception to specific verses of, in Ibn al-Farid's Nazim al-Saluk as well. I would add, I have extensively read Ibn Taymiyyah, especially his um, attacks on, on Ibn al-Arabi, and he gets it. He knows what Ibn al-Arabi is saying. He just disagrees with it. Don't ever think him a fool. As some people present him, Ibn Taymiyyah was a very brilliant man. And though sometimes he, some of his contemporaries said he had a screw loose that didn't have to do with his religious doctrines, but how he interacted with other people. 
He never married. He lived with his mother. And well, and, and for that time, it tells it tells you it tells you We'll leave that alone. As as for Al Bakai, now Al Bakai, I don't think gets it. He was probably the most venal critic of Ibn al-Farid and Ibn al-Arabi, writing several refutations of their works. In Al-Baqarah, heretics like Ibn al-Farid and Ibn al-Arabi are worse than thieves and highwaymen. For whereas the latter deprive people of their material goods, Ibn al-Farid and Ibn al-Arabi destroy the spiritual good of the community by leading Muslims astray. So they steal your goods, but Ibn al-Farid and Ibn al-Arabi are going to lead you to hell. Now, much of this polemical tradition has been al- analyzed recently by Alexander Kanish, and the book is available upstairs. It's a fine study. And he corroborates much of what we've been finding, is that in most of these polemics, critics generally focus their attacks on Ibn al-Arabi's teachings with passing references to Ibn al-Farid's verse. Several opponents, however, feared the power of Ibn al-Farid's poetry for spreading Ibn al-Arabi's views. Al-Zahabi, one of Ibn Taymiyyah's very good students, observed, Ibn al-Farid's diwan is famous, and it is of the greatest beauty and subtlety, perfection and burning desire, except that he adulterated it with explicit monism into sweetest of expressions and the subtlest metaphors like pastry laced with venom. <laughs> it's very interesting when you go to the opponents, except for maybe Al Bakati, who's just a jerk. Everybody, I mean, people just they just go on and on about Ibn Farid's poetry. They they think it's fantastic. And Asafadi, who's a literary critic, um, he goes after some of these others. He doesn't care about the religious part, but he says, you know, Kasta, Ibn Ibn Kastelan is criticizing all these poets for writing like Ibn Farid, but he did too. Now, this link between Ibn al-Farid and Ibn al-Arabi has rarely been disputed by their foes, or by their supporters, for that matter. Perhaps best illustrating this latter view is a story popular in the 17th century, and here related by the noted Andalusian historian al-Maqari. The Sheikh Muhyiddin ibn al-Arabi sent to the master Omar ibn al-Farid, asking his permission to comment on his Nazma Salut, the poem of the Sudway. But Ibn al-Farid said, your book entitled Afutu Haramatiya is a commentary. While this particular story is probably almost undoubtedly apocryphal, it highlights the view that we see in the later Sufi tradition of Ibn Farid and Ibn Arabi as spiritual brothers. Essential to this relationship were a number of Ibn Arabi's followers who read Ibn Farid's verse in light of the Master's teachings. The first to do so was Asaduddin al Qunawi. Ibn al-Arabi's stepson, and perhaps his most influential student and disciple. Giuseppe Scapoli recently discovered what well may be Al-Khonoui's personal copy of the Diwan of Ibn al-Farid. Al-Khonoui visited Cairo at least twice, first in 1233, though he did not meet Ibn al-Farid, and then in 1246, some years after the poet's death, when Al-Khonoui is known to have commented on Ibn al-Farid's Diwan during his teaching sessions. Among those attendings was Shemzuddin al-Aiki, or al-Aiki, we get both pronunciations in the, in the text, who later became an accomplished Sufi master in his own life. Al-Aiki is known to have taught Ibn al-Farid's Nazim al-Saluk, which he has studied with Al-Qanum. Ibn al-Farid's grandson, Ali, related the following story from Al-Aiki, who said, I follow the school of our master, the Sheikh Sadr al-Qanum, in loving the Sheikh Ibn al-Farid, 
believing in his creed and devoting oneself to his ode, poem of the Sufi way. Then the Sheikh of Aiki recited some of its verse, including this one. If not for the veil of being, I would speak out, but my respect for the laws of sense to be silent. Then the Sheikh of Aiki began to comment on the meanings of this verse, saying, A group of students and scholars of religion would attend the teaching sessions of our Sheikh Sadruddin al-Qanawi, and he would discuss specific disciplines within the religious sciences. Then he would bring his discourse to a close by mentioning a verse from the Ode, Poem of the Sufi Way. He would discuss it in Persian using rare and mystical terms, which were not understood save by those possessing mystical experience and desire. Then, on the following day, he would say, another meaning has come to me regarding the commentary of the verse about which we spoke yesterday. And he would say something even more amazing than the day before. Also, he used to say, the Sufi should memorize this ode, and one who understands the ode should comment on it. The Sheikh Aiki, may God's mercy be upon him, added. The Sheikh Sa'id al-Din al-Farghani devoted himself with determination to understanding what Sadduddin al-Qanawi mentioned his commentary on this ode, and he wrote it down in his presence, first in Persian, then in Arabic. He made his famous commentary in two volumes, and it is from this inspired, the, the inspired sayings of our Sheikh Sadduddin al-Qanawi, may God have mercy upon him. Now, we do indeed have the commentaries, both in Persian and Arabic, of Sa'id al-Din al-Farvani, who dies about 1300. And he appears to mark the beginning of a long and popular written commentary tradition on Ibn al-Farid by followers of Ibn al Al-Farvani left no doubt concerning the spiritual sources from which he believed Ibn al-Farid had drawn his great poems. He believed that the mystic poet's own intense experiences of love and his metamorphosis in the phases of divine proximity inspired this profoundly religious verse. And Al-Farghani interpreted the poem's accordingly. Drinking wine symbolized Ibn Farah's mystical experiences, while the burning pains of love alluded to this mystic's, mystic, this mystic's pain separation from God. So Al-Farghani already begins to make the mistake that goes all the way through our tradition of reading this poetry as spiritual autobiography. We simply don't know. And in fact, when you go into Ibn Farah's verse and find out that at least two of his poems are modeled off of love poems and panegyrics by Muttanabi, you've got to be careful by saying that this somehow is autobiography. It's not. It doesn't mean it's not mystical. But there's what we call the poetic persona, that the poet assumes various roles to teach to sing, to, you know, everybody who sings the blues doesn't necessarily mean their wife will be left there. And it's the same thing that's going on here. And that we need to pay attention to that. But not so these commentators. They're reading this as straight on the Following Al-Farghani's interpretation of Ibn Farid were two other commentators. Afif al-Din al-Tilimsani, also a student of Al-Qanawi, and Dawood al-Qaisari. Al-Qaisari, though not a student of Al-Qanawi, had been a student of Abdul Razak al-Qashani, who had been a student of Al-Jandi, another student of Al-Qadim. So it was just another part of the whole generation. Okay? Likewise, they followed Al-Fargani in their assertions of the inspired nature of Ibn Farid's verse. And they went so far as to draw, draw, to draw daring parallels between the poem of the Sufi way and the inimitable Quran. As Al-Qaisri declared, no one has ever produced the likes of it in any age or epoch. Its expression by nature will never again be permitted as long as night turns to day. 
and it is impossible to describe it by explanation or characterize it by illusion. And I think this is something quite important, particularly when you get to the Paisley. And I'm working, I'm editing and translating his commentary on the Rhino. It's very clear that he is looking at this as not as poetry so much as divine speech. Not necessarily from God, but one removed. Very much inspired poetry. This is a religious source. And these commentaries became the lenses through which later generations have read Ibn al-Farid's verse. They present Ibn al-Farid as an enlightened Gnostic and divinely inspired poet of the Sufi way. Even more specifically, the mystical theologies expounded in their commentaries, particularly in the long introductions, especially by al-Fargani, al-Tilimsani, al-Qaisari, and later in the commentary by the great Persian poet Jami, and in the 18th century scholar Abdurrani al-Nabulusi. And what their commentaries reveal is that they believe Ibn al-Farid to have been a spokesman to the very popular doctrines of Ibn al-Farid. These and similar commentaries, though, as I said, are really taking this as a religious text. And they've been criticized as not being very good works of literary criticism. But I think that, that begs the question, because they're not professing to be literary criticism. And I think we should regard the works as not literary criticism, but as mystical exegesis. In fact, several of these commentaries became respected mystical works in their own right, especially the commentary on the poem of the Sufi Weba Afghani, um, and uh, William Chittick has looked at that. And we also have Abu Nabalusi's massive commentary on Ibn al-Farid's entire Dwayne, um, which is getting more attention by Barbara von Schlegel and others. And then there's the commentary on the Wino by Garud al-Qaisari, which is incredibly important. There are about, I think, 25 commentaries on the Wino, and almost all go right back to him. Now, it should be noted that Ibn al-Farid and Ibn al-Arabi apparently never met. And in fact, there is no solid evidence that they were even familiar with each other's works. <laughs> now, Ibn al-Arabi came to Cairo. Um, as we know, he passed through. And I was checking those dates recently, and he went on to Arabia. If he met Ibn al-Farid, he probably met him in Mecca and Medina. Because I suspect Ibn al-Farid was there at that time. But I also think that we don't know for sure, but I suspect Ibn al-Farid had not attained his fame as a poet until he returns to Cairo um, later on, maybe around 1210 or so. And Ibn al-Arabi himself, he's hanging out with Maghrebi people. He's not interacting that much with the, with the Kyrenes and the Syrians at this time. And as we look at patterns, too, in Cairo and, and Syria, in the Ayyubids and later into the, the uh, Mamluk period, we find a lot of clustering um, by, by where individuals come from. And of course, later in time, both Ibn al-Farid and Ibn al-Arabi are teaching all sorts of people from all over the place. So you have Ibn al-Musti from Andalusia, uh, Ibn al-Musti, um, who's writing about Ibn al-Arabi, and he's writing about Ibn al-Farid because he studied with both. Um, but, it doesn't, but he does not link them. So I suspect that they may not have met. Moreover, some recent studies by Scatolin and my own work too have drawn attention to differences in the mystical terminology used by Ibn al-Farid and Ibn al-Arabi. Scatolin will push that harder than I will because I think what we have to, he doesn't pay enough attention to, when you're writing poetry, like Ibn al-Farid is, you're, you're bound in a lot of your language. Ibn, Ibn al-Arabi, his poems are, you know, he's using a line of meter to write about anything. He's, he's very creative that way. So he's not quite as bound in the, in the same way. He can use all sorts of language. But, so I, I wouldn't push that, that too hard. And, and as we've, all, we've seen already with, with Ibn al-Arabi, 
as Zulkaya pointed out, every time you think you're there, he's going to confuse things. Well, with the lives of these two men, and you start to read their works, they're going to confuse us more. Because the two men, I would say, undoubtedly shared in a broader mystical heritage that saw being as a unified reality in a constant state of self-disclosure. Ibn al-Arabi is not, by any means, the first person to say this. He may have articulated it extremely well, but this goes way back. And so, and I think, so we're looking at a common heritage. But, intriguingly, both used on occasion the medieval shadow play as a simile to illustrate this point. That is not. In chapter 317 of Ibn al-Arabi takes up the issue of the relationship between the body and the spirit, and by extension, the relationship of the cosmos, that is the physical cosmos, with God. Ibn al-Arabi said, God is the ruh al-al, the spirit of the cosmos, and its ear, its eye, its hand. By him the cosmos hears, by him it sees, by him it speaks, by him it grasps, and by him it runs. For there is no power or strength save in God, the Most High, the Tremendous. Here Ibn al-Arabi has taken the hadith of the willing devotions mentioned earlier, in which God assumes the sense is believed in worship. But now he's applied it to the entire cosmos. He goes on, in fact, and says, Ibn al-Arabi, God has already assumed our senses. Because he says, uh, here's what this wonderful play, grammatically, uh, and he's reading it wrong, on purpose. It says, if he does this, then I love him. So it says, kuntu. You've got to use the past tense in that case. But Ibn al-Arabi forgets the first half and says, see, he used kuntu. It says, I was, I am, I already have assumed your senses, you just don't know it. Well, this is very much in keeping with his philosophy and his, his system. And it's only by an act of his grace that one comes to realize and know this. So here's where relative and absolute time can merge into one. It's all the way you look at it, or you're allowed to see it. Ibn Arabi then concludes, saying, For one who wants to understand what I have alluded to here, let him observe the shadow play with its shapes and one who speaks for them. Young children are kept a distance from the curtain screen, which separates them from one who plays with those figures and speaks for them. Such is the actual situation for the shape of the cosmos. Most people are those children who are having fun and enjoying the play, but they are heedless, taking it in as sport and amusement. But those who know, al-ulama, I think we need to use this in its broader implication, consider the matter and know that God has made this only to serve as a simile. Thus a figure called the narrator, the wasaf, comes out at first, and we're talking about a puppet, comes out at first and gives a short sermon praising and glorifying God. Then he talks about each figure from among the shapes that will come out after him from behind the screen. Thus the learned know that God has made this a likeness for his worshippers, so that they will take heed and know that the actual situation of the cosmos with God is like these figures with one who moves them, and that the screen veils the mystery of the perfect measuring out of destiny for all creatures. Still, with all of this, the heedless take it all in as sport and amusement, as he most high has said, those who take their religion as sport and amusement. Then the narrator vanishes, 
and he corresponds to the first to exist among us, namely Adam, upon whom be peace. When he vanished, his concealment was from us, as he is now with God, behind the screen of the unseen. And God speaks only the truth and leads to the way. And that ends the chapter. As we might expect, Ibn Farid offers a more poetic account of the shadow play in his poem of the Sufi way. That goes something like this. For an illusion's drowsy dream, the phantom shadow leads you to what shimmers through the screens. And you see the shapes of things in every display disclosed before you from behind the veil's disguise. As opposites were joined in them for some wise reason, so their figures appear in every form, silent they seem to speak, still they seem to move, shedding light though dark. While, while amazed you laugh, giddy and full of cheer, then cry bereaved like a mother who's lost her child. You will wail when they mourn their plundered fortune and rejoice when they sing a sweet song. In the branches you see birds cooing and warbling sad songs that stir you. You were awed by sounds of their many voices, for they clearly spoke in foreign tongues. On land camels cleave the desert night, on sea ships race amid heaving deep. And you see two armies on land at times and other times at sea in great formations. Courageous, dressed in iron mail, they stand their ground with swords and spears. The soldiers of the land, knights on horse and mainly men in infantry. And the heroes at the sea, riding the decks or climbing the lance-like masts, are striking wild with shining sword, thrusting the brown shaft of a strong quivering spear, drowning in the fire of striking arrows, burning in the deluge of piercing hot blades. You see one charging headlong, giving up himself, while another turns defeated and broken. And you witness the catapult hoisted up, then it fires to destroy fortresses strong and forbidding. You glimpse specters like disembodied souls lying in stealth in their genie land. Wild attire, savage nature set them apart from the humanity of humans, but then genies are not humane. Into the river, the hunter casts his net and quickly draws out fish, and cunningly he sets the traps and hungry birds are snared for seed. Ravenous serpents shatter ships at sea, lions in the jungle claw their prey, and in the air some birds snatch up, savage beasts hunt in the badlands. You will watch other shapes I have not mentioned, but I will trust in these choice few. So consider and learn what appeared to you in the single span of that long delay. All you witness is the act of one alone, but within the cloistering veils. But when he removes the screen, you see none but him. No suspicious doubt lingers about the shapes he forms. And you realize when the truth is shown that by his light you were guided to his actions in the shadows. This is a, a valuable piece, too, in terms of just social and literary history. Because in those verses, he's telling you all sorts of things that the, that the shadow plays did. They had battles of armies, they had birds, they had genies. They were acting out probably the Arabian Nights and a whole series of stories that were going through there. That is, you go along and you read in the poem, you forget, and then you come back. Now, this section, this is part of, of a section, a larger section of the poem of the Sufi Way. And for those of you who don't know, the poem of the Sufi Way takes up most of this book. It's one of the longest poems in Arabic. It's 760 verses. Now that's amazing. 
Because on, on the long, his other longer love poetry is maybe 114 lines, which that's pushing it. But this is a long, long poem where he starts out, his first 160 lines starts out like a traditional love poem, and then he stops. He goes, well, now it's time to tell you um, in more, uh, to expand upon what I said in brief. And so then he starts to spin out sort of interpretive frameworks for what's going on in there. Not like Ibn al-Arabi, however, because he stays in, the, in, a, in a lyrical mode. But then you get this, this shadow play, which you will not find in Arabic poetry. This is not part of the Arabic motifs, or motifs of Arabic poetry, though you will find it in Persian. You'll find it in uh, uh, slight references in Omar Khayyam, and you'll find it in Atar. And in a way, some of this poem works more like uh, Atar's Conference of the Birds, and then as Ru uh, Rumi will come later, actually, referring to Ibn al-Farid, in the Masnavi or these longer, more narrative tales. That's what you get a, a kind of a playing out here. And so, and in this section, Ibn al-Farid, as the poet, assumes the role of an enlightened master. So before he gets to that section, he is exhorting his disciple to strive for true union while avoiding false beliefs, particularly the notion that the human being is a permanent entity. He says, that's, that's your flaw. You think you're immortal. You're not. You know, there was a time when you were, and there was a time when you will not be. And to clarify this point, the poet turns to consider individual existence and action. Parables dominate this portion of the poem regarding human nature whose spiritual qualities have been obstructed and forgotten. This time, however, as it often happens, the culprit is not the body or the material world, so much it is the nafs, the carnal soul or concupiscence that suppresses the spirit, ruh, for its own selfish ends. The play of the nafs and the ruh is all through Ibn Farid's poetry. Very, he's very psychological oriented. I suspect he's pulling this from Janai, either directly or from some intermediary steps that will come up in the third book if I get it done next year. Now, by means of the senses and sensation, the nafs seduces the unwary person into believing that he or she alone is the crown of creation, that his or her existence is totally unique, independent, and especially everlasting. Ibn al-Farbas tell us we're just not all that original. Like the rogue of the picaresque stories popular in Ibn al-Farid's day, the Nas constantly changes its guide in order to deceive and swindle its naive companion. Talmin, the shape-shifting, this is what genies do in pre-Islamic Arabic poetry. Or ghouls, it's the ghoul who shifts. A ghoul is a monster. It comes from the Arabic uh, to, to be lost in the desert. So a ghoul represents that being lost, losing your way. And it always is shape-shifting like the mirage. And Ibn Farid brings that in and says, that's what your selfish nature does. It's constantly fooling you to think you're, you're independent and immoral. And it covers up the true spiritual nature that you have. So the poet, his master, urges the aspirant to look beneath appearances to see himself, to see for him or herself the crafty play of the nuts. The seeker must stop thinking solely in terms of the body and the physical senses and consider the origins of his action and his presumed roles as a factor. He must look deeper, listen more intently to discover the divine spirit within. Now here's, here's a key play that I'll give him Because the spirit is the goal, he sternly warns against dismissing the phenomenal world as merely transient and illusory. It is not. For it's only through phenomena that individuals become manifest and act at all. 
And when seen aright, phenomena reveals reality's hidden truth. Namely, the Creator only exists in His creation. Just as the puppeteer relies on his puppets to perform the play. That's what he talks about. She was disguised by a revealing veil. The veil covers and the veil reveals the form. That's what Ibn Far is always saying about reality. It is not to be rejected as illusory. What's illusory is that you think it's permanent. That you think it's unchanging. And it's especially that you 